0: for coffee. This is Howard Bloom and this is meet me for coffee. Howard Bloom, the great publicist and author and there's way more to talk about. I don't even bel- this could be more than just one podcast. I'm pretty sure because he's wrote 7 books. The newest one, Einstein, Michael Jackson and Me, which you are on the show today to promote. There's another couple of books on human evolution. And what I want to ask you, where did human life come from and how did we get here? Well, this is a very good question. And
1: actually, science cannot answer this question. No, very few of us in science are going to tell you that. Very few of us are going to admit to that. The fact is, we have these theories that are based on this uh, theory called entropy and According to entropy, everything is supposed to fall apart. It's supposed to break down. All good things turn to garbage in the end. And in fact, the universe is not like that at all. The universe started out with a big bang that came from absolutely nothing. A big bang from absolutely nothing? Is that falling apart? No, that's falling together. And then came the first elementary particles. And did they fall apart? No, they fell together. And the first elementary particles 300,000 years later fell together into the first atoms. And again, is that falling apart? No, that's falling together. And then all of these atoms got together in these giant gravity sweepings that we now call galaxies and stars. And is that falling apart? No, it's falling together. And eventually, molecules, the, the, the atoms came together in molecules, these great big social structures. And the social structures made life. And we have no idea, George of how in the world it pulled this off. Because we have a fundamental theory about things falling apart, and in fact, the universe keeps falling together. And science, so far, hasn't even begun to confront that paradox.
0: Uh, What are your theories on
1: it? Well, just just to give you an idea of where I come from on this, um, I've been published in 13 different sciences. Um, I've either been published or given uh, lectures at scholarly conferences. And those include everything from quantum physics and cosmology to evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, neuroscience, information science, aerospace, for God's sakes, and governance. So I know what I'm talking about because I've been in science since I was 10 years old when I started in theoretical physics and microbiology. So the real big question is, if you started out in theoretical physics and microbiology, how in the world did you get into rock and roll? I mean, you know, that doesn't compute, right? It's not normal.
0: No, usually somebody has a, a common trend as, you know, playing music or liking rock and roll and then getting into the career of uh, being a publicist for rock and roll bands and groups, right?
1: Right. Well, my mom wanted me to be a violinist. I looked skinny and and weak enough to be a violinist, a typical ninety-nine pound weakling, but I had no I had such total inability at it that one day I was standing in my living room with the second violinist for the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, because I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I was scratching away at whatever PC designed assigned me the previous week, and all of a sudden I saw this fist the size of a ham descending from my right, hitting the violin, knocking the violin out of my hand, and flinging it across the room to the velvet curtains, where fortunately, because they're velvet, it fell unharmed. But that's how my Violin teacher felt about my violin abilities, and I never saw him again. And then I tried to enlist in, in uh, eighth grade for a grammar school trombone class because I was getting into jazz and I wanted to be like J and K Winding, these two guys who played the trombone. I was thrown out of my class after two weeks. I've never heard of another child being thrown out of a grammar school music class before. So I was a musical incompetent. Now admittedly, as soon as I had bar mitzvah money together, I bought something brand new called a hi-fi. The secret of the hi-fi was a great big speaker for bass sounds and a little teeny-weeny speaker for for high pitched sounds. And and I started listening to music like a madman, but it was Beethoven, Bartok, Stravinsky, Rachmaninoff, all of those people. It wasn't rock and roll. So I had no musical abilities, except the ability to listen voraciously. um, And I knew nothing about popular culture and rock and roll and pop music. So that just leaves even more mysteries (laughs) about how I got into working with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, R. Smith, Kiss, Queen, Run, DMC, Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, people like that.
0: Hold on, let me write all those down, because that's a big list. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big fan of rock played. and roll. So I'm a big fan of rock and roll. But I will tell you this: you probably already know this. Michael Jackson is probably one of, the, if not the best musician of all time. Um, and just the way he would demo his tracks, you know, he would put the the bed underneath. He basically beatboxed the track. Like for I heard right. a I heard a um, a demo track of just beat it, and he just right did the bed for it with his mouth, right? The, uh, like wow. Um, amazing.
1: Well, he was the most amazing person I've ever met in my life. Ever. Ever. I mean, so, look, I've worked with Buzz Aldrin. He's been a friend for the last 15 years. You know, the second guy on the moon. Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth guy on the moon. Um, I've wor- I work with the former governor of New York State. I work with Newt Gingrich. I'm a Democrat and, I rep- and a Republican. But Newt is in a group that I run. I've I've worked with all of these spectacularly amazing people. And it's as if all of them were this high and Michael Jackson was a giant who filled the room. He was the most extraordinary person I've ever met. And to understand why he was so extraordinary, I got to take you back to when I was 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, I was totally lost. Other kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. If they used me for anything, it was to beat me up or chase me around the block or grab my hat and toss it back and forth between them. Um, I was of no use to my parents. I didn't seem to give them any joy whatsoever. And they were both very hardworking people. So they had no time for me. So I had no humans in my life when I was 10 years old. And one day this book appeared on my lap, um, in my family's living room in Buffalo, New York. I don't know where it came from. Cause you know, George, when you're 10, you know, the location of every single one of the books, your parents own. They it's been on the same shelf in exactly the same place your entire life. And this is a book that had no place on any shelf. So I really don't know where it came from. And I opened it up and it said, the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. It claimed, gave Galileo as an example, and it claimed that Galileo was willing to go to the stake, to be burned alive um, in order to defend his truth. That turned out 30 years later to be untrue, but I needed the heroic version of this story. Um, And, Rule number two of science, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look for things that are invisible to you and invisible to everybody around you. And look at them with awe and wonder, then proceed from there. So the first rule, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, is the rule of courage, commitment. Um, the second rule, look at things right under, under your nose as if you've never seen them before, is the rule of awe, wonder, and courage. And Michael, when I finally met him, was the living embodiment the incarnation of those first two rules and i never expected to see anything like it in my life
0: let's talk about einstein michael jackson and me your newest book michael jackson inspired you to write this book
1: well not just michael jackson yes i felt that if we all understand who michael really was Well, it it will set a new bar for humanity. And what do I mean by that? Back in 1954, um, all the physiological experts said unequivocally that humans would never be capable of running a mile in less than four minutes. No one had ever done it. And there was this med school student named Roger Bannister in England and uh, another med school student who worked with him. And they analyzed every move he made to see every tiny move with which he was wasting energy when he was running and to train him to use all of his energy to move forward. And Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He did what the physiologist said was absolutely impossible. And since then, 1,800 people have broken the four-minute mile. Well, Michael had a degree of awe, wonder, surprise, and commitment so far beyond anything I'd ever imagined in my life that I feel if I get that across successfully to my fellow human beings, It will set a new standard the way Roger Bannister's four-minute mile set a new standard. And once people see that standard, some people will try to live up to that standard. And in living up to it, they will make it, right now, it is beyond extraordinary. It's astonishing that it's ever existed. But then 1,800 people will be able to do it. And then it'll become a stair step on which a next generation stands, building the stair step above it. Um, In other words, I think Michael Jackson's example can expand the perceptual envelope of all humankind. And so I try to tell you, I try to put you with Michael Jackson so that he is standing next to you the way he used to stand next to me um, in this book. So you understand what an awesome human he was. So it sets a new standard for your sense of human possibility.
0: When did you meet Michael Jackson? Well, it was 1982.
1: 1982. Um, or 1983, uh, the Jacksons were getting together for the Victory Tour. It was the first tour they were gonna do in three years with all of the brothers together, and they were even bringing their father in on it. It was gonna be a big family affair. And the Jacksons' manager um, kept calling me. Um, I had a reputation, you know, I worked in building people like Prince and Bob Marley and Bette Midler and all kinds of people. And I took unknown 19-year-olds and turned them into superstars. And um, so they kept calling me. And I kept saying, no, I'm not interested in working with the Jacksons. I do hard things. I do crusades. There's no crusade here. You can get a talking dog to get on the phone and say Michael Jackson. And any newspaper or magazine editor anywhere in the country would say, give me an interview and I'll give you the cover. And I don't do that. It's too easy. Um, but they kept calling anyway, and finally they called and they said um, the Jacksons are coming into New York City and they want to meet with you. Well, uh, okay, George. I, as I said, did not grow up among other human beings, so I didn't know normal human rituals at all. But I had heard this phrase: if you're going to say no to someone and you want to be a mensch, you have to say no to them to their face. So I said yes to the meeting. So at midnight, I was knocking on their door at the Helmsley Palace, one of the top floors on the white and gilt door, and the door opened three inches, and I I saw the four brothers literally up against the wall like this. And now there was an ad for TDK or something like that for audio cassettes back then, and it had a guy sitting in a big easy chair with long hair and headphones on, and there must have been a fan blowing at 120 miles an hour against him because his hair was straight back, and he was plastered. Up against the seat. And all four Jacksons looked like that to me. And something on some intuitive level said there is trouble in this room and it's big trouble. So the minute I walked in the door, I said yes, which was the very opposite of what I had intended to say. But there were big problems there. I was just too stupid up until then to realize it. So a couple of months later, um, we were at Marlon Jackson's pool house in Encino, California. A pool house is a little building, just big enough to have one room on the first floor and one room on the second floor. And on the first floor the room is, the walls are just studded with arcade video games, games that are too expensive for any mortal human to ever afford. And in the middle of the table, there's a billiard table. So the brothers and I were crowded around the billiard table. The brothers, George, they were so good to me, it was ridiculous. They put me at the very center of the group. They always did that, as if I were one of the brothers. And we were looking at merchandising items, and I was trying to explain to them, even when you present a T-shirt to your fans, you represent spectacular level of quality. So that T-shirt has to have a spectacular level of quality. And I knew Michael was coming there because there was a meeting with the art director from CBS. So I heard the door open, and another human ritual, somebody had taught me when I was 19, is if people want you to meet somebody, you walk up to that person, you put your hand out, and you say, hi, I'm Howard. And the other person gives his name. Now, I had read a 1,000 articles on Michael Jackson, a stack of articles that big. And every single one of them said, Michael Jackson is a bubble baby. And if you try to stick out your hand to his, he will withdraw. He'll just snap away from you. So I heard the screen door opening, and I knew it was Michael. And I went over to the screen door. And while Michael was still coming in the door, I put my hand out, and I said, hi, I'm Howard. And he put his hand into mine and he said, hi, I'm Michael. And it was the most, it was a little softer than the average handshake. It certainly wasn't an attempt to crush my hand and demonstrate that he was a football player or something like that and mean and cruel. And I said, Michael, I have a press release I need your approval on. Where can I read it to you? So we went up the tiny little flight of stairs to the second story room. And the second story room was heaped with amplifiers and keyboards. When I say heaped, I mean all the way to the ceiling. So Michael found one amplifier to sit on and I found another. Now I had taken my writing very seriously for a very long time. Here's where Einstein comes into the picture. When I was 12 years old and in eighth grade, a girl had turned her eyes in my direction. George, that was something that had never happened to me before. And then she made eye contact and that was even more startling. And she told me, I told my mom, "You understand the theory of relativity." Well, I'd been reading two books a day since I was ten, you know, motivated by Galileo and Anton van Leeuwenhoek, and by now I was known as an expert in science, and that's the only thing I had going for me. The kids called me the sickly scientist, so I didn't understand the theory of relativity, but I didn't dare confess it to her. So I got on a bicycle and I drove over to the local library, where the librarians literally knew me better than my mother did. And said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they shoved two books after they rummaged around in the stacks. They shoved two books across the counter at me. One was a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators. And the other was a little skinny book by Einstein himself. And I had learned at that point in my life, if you put yourself through the hardest thing, not the easiest thing, by the time you finish a book you don't think you understand at all, you will have understood something. So at 8 o'clock that night, after four hours, I had only made 50 pages into the big fat book because the big fat book only had about seven words of English per page, and the rest was all equations, and I have never been able to understand equations. So I realized it's 8 o'clock. My mom is going to put me to sleep in two hours. At 10 o'clock, I have two hours left to understand the theory theory of relativity, or tomorrow I'm toast. Um, So I picked up the little skinny book. And, George, in that, Einstein had written the introduction to the book, in addition to writing the book. And in the introduction, it felt like he had grabbed, reached out through the pages, grabbed me by the shirt, pulled my nose up to his, and said, schmuck, listen up. If you want to be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to write to come up with that theory and then to write it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Albert Einstein, through the pages of a book, when I was 12 years old, had told me that if you wanna be an original scientific thinker, which is what I wanted to be, um, you are going to have to be a writer and not just any old writer. You're gonna have to be a really terrific writer. So I had gone to work obsessively to teach myself to write, which didn't come naturally to me at all. It was difficult. Um, And when I was in college, Um, The poet in residence at NYU uh, thought I'd be the next great poet to come out of NYU. So he had kidnapped me into editing and art directing the the literary magazine, which I turned into an experimental graphics and literary magazine and we won two National Academy of Poets prizes. So when I'm sitting there on on one amplifier, reading a press release to Michael Jackson, who is sitting on another amplifier, the stuff I have written in that press release is not your ordinary hack prose. It is based on all these years of super saturation with the art of writing. So I read the first two sentences and Michael goes, oh, and he slumps a little bit on his amplifier. And I read the next two sentences and he goes, oh, and he slumps even further on his amplifier. And by the time I've gotten to the end, he says, man, that was beautiful. Did you write that? And of course I'd written it. Michael Jackson was the only person in my entire lifetime who ever saw the art in a press release, ever. And there was all the art in the world in it, George, but no one had ever seen it before. So then we went downstairs, and the art director from CBS was there, and she had five of the most gorgeous portfolios you've ever seen in your life from five legendary illustrators um, and they were tooled, hand tooled leather and hand tooled cherry wood. And she slid the first one across the billiard table, uh, the green felt of the pool table at us. Now, Michael and I are standing. I'm he's on my right. Um, so my elbow is up against his elbow. My knee is up against his knee. Uh, my shoulder is up against his shoulder. Anything he's going to feel, I'm going to feel. Um, and he lifts the page to see the first page of illustration, and he only gets a square inch into it. It's barely open, and Michael goes, Oh, 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 and he is having an aesthetic orgasm right next to me, and it's conveyed directly from his body to mine because we are shoulder to shoulder and knee to knee. And he saw more in that first square inch of that illustration than even the illustrator ever saw. It was an astonishing experience. So when I talk about Michael as the living instantiation, the living incarnation of the second rule of science, a look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. We are talking about a man who could see the infinite in the tiniest of things. It was beyond astonishing. And when it came to his degree of commitment, um, a couple of months later, I'm sitting at my desk in in New York City on Lexington Avenue and 55th Street. It's a two-story office with a circular staircase, and I have a desk the size of an aircraft hangar with seven rolled Xs on it. And behind me is a little red $19.95 red nylon knapsack. And in the knapsack is a TRS-100 computer, the very first laptop, Radio Shack. And, uh, and a spare shirt and a toothbrush and a razor because I get emergency calls on a periodic basis saying you got to be out here wherever here is by such and such a time because something awful is happening. So this time it was a call that came in at four o'clock in the afternoon and the voice on the other end said, um, you got to be out here at 11 o'clock tonight. Michael is canceling his tour. You're the only one he will listen to. So I got my staff to get me a plane ticket immediately. I got them to get me a car service. I ran down the, the stairs, even though I had hundreds of phone calls waiting for me from people who wanted to talk to the Jacksons. And <coughs> I made it out to California by 11 o'clock that night and got my Randall car and followed the instructions um, to where I was supposed to go. And it turned out to be a giant studio lot. And a studio lot's a weird place, especially at night, because it's these giant aircraft hangar-sized buildings. And um, one of the buildings was lit, all of the others were dark. But the building was so big that even lit, it looked like the the darkness of the building was swallowing all the light. So I walked into this aircraft hangar-sized thing, and there were the Jacksons rehearsing on a 110-foot stage. Now, look, I had represented ZZ Top when we were taking Texas culture to the world. And ZZ Top had one of the biggest stages ever. It was a 75-foot wide stage in the shape of the state of Texas, tilted at an angle so that you could see its shape. 75 feet, and I'm looking at a 110-foot stage. This is the biggest stage I've ever seen in my life. So I waited until Jackson's finished rehearsing, and there was a dressing trailer. Have you ever been in a dressing trailer? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a trailer you can drive around wherever you want to go, but it's set up as a dressing room. So we went into this dressing trailer and it had banquettes of red vinyl seats over on this side and over on this side. And then there was a little narrow banquette next to the door and that was the throne. So Michael took the throne and I took the seat to his immediate left, his non-threatening side. And, and the tour had been in terrible trouble up until then. I don't know why when I went to see the Jacksons, I was so stupid as not to realize that. It was in terrible trouble because somebody was setting up a whole set of attacks on the tour, tearing the tour apart. And one rock critic in particular, who was a a lead sheep in the rock critic, in other words, what he said, everybody else imitated. His name was Dave Marsh, was saying, well, we know everybody in the business, and nobody that we know, we meaning what was called the rock crit elite, the rock critics elite, Nobody we know has been hired to build the stage, so the stage is going to fall down. Nobody we know has been hired to do the sound, so the sound system is going to electrocute the performers. Nobody that we know has been hired to do the lighting, so these giant lighting towers seven stories high are going to collapse on the audience and will kill people. And nobody we know has been hired to do security. So there will be gangs running up and down the aisles with knives, and you don't dare take your children to one of these concerts. And, um... So Michael started to explain why. I didn't know why the tour had been susceptible to such negative publicity, even though it was my job to try to stop it, and I was doing my best. And Michael explained something. He said, look, for the last year and a half, I've had 110 of the most talented people in the world working on this tour. But I made every single one of them sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. I made them sign to utter secrecy. Why? Because God has given me the ability to have wonder, awe, and surprise. That wonder, awe, and surprise that we saw at the pool table. And because God has given that as a gift to me, it is my job to give that to my kids. And when Michael started talking about his obligation to his kids, I had one of the very few visions in my lifetime. And the vision was that Michael's ribs had become golden gates. And I saw those golden gates open. And I saw 10,000 kids inside of Michael whose interest he was going to protect and defend, even if it cost him his life. And Michael explained, my brother Jackie is the best dancer I know. Now think about this, George. Um, no one has studied the history of dance, popular dance, more carefully than Michael Jackson. He has learned from everybody, from James Brown to uh, Fred Astaire, um, and so when he says that somebody is the best dancer he's ever seen in his life, that is, a, that is the most expert opinion possibly on earth. And he explained that Jackie had come down with a bone chip in his knee and had arthroscopic surgery. Well, I knew that because I had flown out to L.A. to do the press conference at the hospital, um, giving the results and, and letting the surgeons speak their piece. And he said, Jackie was supposed to be better by now, but he's not better. And we don't know how long it's going to take him to get better. So I need to cancel the tour until Jackie can get better, because I owe my audience the best. And he is the best. Now, Michael spoke with the force of a prophet. It was astonishing. Like Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea as Moses. But I know certain truths, and when I know a truth, gut deep, bone deep, I, I can be prophetic too. And I explained to Michael that everything has been done to sabotage this tour so far. Everybody has, everything has been done to undermine the public's confidence in this tour. And if you cancel this tour, you're going to validate all of these rumors that everything is amateurish and that everything is going to fall apart and that you don't dare send your kids to see this tour. And if that happens, you will not get to reach the kids you have prepared this tour for for a year and a half. You will not get to rouse their awe, their wonder, and their surprise because their parents will not let them go. Their parents will not take them. And Michael listened to me, and the tour proceeded. But it was the degree of commitment you felt in him to his audience. That was the first law of science. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. Come alive in front of my very eyes. And Michael has lived in my bones. He has lived in my muscles. He has lived in my soul ever since because he was, again, if other humans are one feet tall, he was 10 feet tall um, in his ability to experience these things.
0: Was there always trouble with people trying to tarnish Michael's reputation? Was he, he, was he, is it just me or was he very misunderstood?
1: He was very, very, very badly abused and misunderstood. For the first, look, Michael lived on this planet for 50 years, a very short amount of time. For 25 of those years, he was becoming Michael Jackson. And for the remaining 25 years, he was dangling on the cross with nails through his wrists and his ankles. And it was a horrible thing to see, because if anyone deserved good, it was Michael, because Michael gave good to everyone in every way he conceivably could. One day, his manager, Frank DeLeo, who was the stupidest man I have ever met in the entertainment industry, but he was kind enough to say, look, I'm not supposed to tell you this. But every night, you know, how music, musicians have a, and performers have a really hard time psyching up for a performance. Well, here's what Michael does. He has me find two kids who are dying of cancer and want more than anything else in the world to meet Michael Jackson before they die. And he has me bring them to the backstage area, and he spends the 45 minutes before the show with those two kids. That's how basic, how deep Michael's commitment to what he saw as his kids um, was. It was just astonishing.
0: That's incredible. You know, Michael Jackson, we, you know, that, that last documentary on him.
1: It just leaving Neverland. Terrible, terrible documentary.
0: Horrible. Like, what in the right mind? Obviously, Michael thought that this guy who went to go interview him had some good intentions, ended up turning around on him. You know, following him around, being, hey, he's spending so much money, um, you know, he's a child. Um, it, it just never ended for the the poor guy, and I really felt that this time around, when he was going to go on that world tour, I wanted to go see him. Right. And, you know, my luck ran out, and I guess so of my sort of Michael's, unfortunately, right. and. It just its so sad because his music will live on, and he probably has uh, albums upon albums still at a release. I would, I would bet you're right. And, and here's one of the things
1: that was happening to Michael. It, it involves a Billy Joel story. Billy Joel loves his motorcycles. And one day he was motorcycling out on Long Island, um, and he was doing the speed limit, 45 miles an hour, and he, he was, uh, a, a green light was coming up. Now, when a green light comes up, what do you do? Do you go through it or do you stop? You can go through it. Green light is four, which means that the person on the road perpendicular to him, catty corner to him, had a red light. And what do you do on a red light? You stop, right? Well, the driver coming catty corner to Billy did not stop at the red light. She tried to make a left turn and Billy had, didn't have enough stopping distance for his brakes to have any influence on the motorcycle's motion. And he hit her car and he went flying over the car to the other side of the road. And she was hysterical. She was a 27 year old woman. And she got out of the car afraid she had killed this poor motorcyclist and, and rushed over to where Billy was. And Billy had to be medevaced by helicopter to Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan and they thought he was gonna lose his right hand. And losing your right hand if you are a, a piano man um, in other words, if you are at your best, at your most alive, when you are pounding on your piano in front of an audience, if lo- you lose a hand, America loses a cultural treasure. Um, America loses a cultural landmark and you lose the ability to do the thing that makes you most alive in life. fortunately they were able to save his hand. But then, apparently, this woman must have gone to an attorney and the attorney must have said, hey, you don't understand something. You just had this accident with a superstar. Now, a superstar needs to keep this accident out of the headlines because he needs to keep anything from tarnishing his reputation. So if you sue him for hitting you, instead of letting him sue you for nearly killing him, um, he will give you a payment, he will pay you off, he will buy you off. And sure enough, Billy had to pay $250,000 to keep this person who'd almost killed him quiet. Now, apply that to Michael Jackson, who was worth t- anywhere from 10 to 100 times what Billy Joel will ever be worth. Um, and Michael, why did Michael love kids? He started rehearsing with his brothers. His father was a musician. And his father kept his guitar in a closet during the day when he was off at work, probably working in a steel plant or, or an auto plant or something like that. And, um, and the brothers were not supposed to touch it but they started going into that closet and rehearsing when Michael was six years old. So there was Michael rehearsing for professional level performances when he was six years old and going on stage at major theaters when he was nine years old and performing for Kings and Queens when he was nine and 10 and 11 years old. In other words, Michael Jackson never had a childhood. Now, there is a, a researcher named Yak Pankset and Yak Pang said, first of all, he demonstrated that baby mice play with each other, like puppies play. Um, and that if you took mice, baby mice, and you deprive them of the ability to play during the time that baby mice normally spend playing, that if you let them back into the group when they're adults, they will be suffering from play deprivation, and they will still need to get in the same amount of playing they would have had if they'd had the opportunity to play when they were kids. While Michael was suffering from childhood deprivation. So one day we were doing a photo shoot 110 miles uh, north of LA on the beach. And there was a little park and the park was about 150 yards wide. Um, and it was uh, walled off by these uh, bare wood ranch style fences. And there were, it was all set up with dressing trailers that were There were um, cars being shipped in Lamborghinis and Lotuses and all kinds of exotic cars for the photo shoot. And it was taking the photographers a long time to set up the shoot. So Germaine stayed in his whole trailer and never came out. The brothers hung around together uh, around their trailers. Michael never went into the trailer at all. He went directly to one of the fences where a bunch of kids were gathered. And he spent the entire two and a half hours with those kids. Why? Because Michael genuinely loved children because they were what he had not been allowed to be. And when it came to having them in Michael's bedroom, remember the first time you were ever on a sleepover? It was one of those wildly exciting things you'd ever experienced in your life. You started talking at 10 o'clock when your mom or your friend's mom put you to sleep and you were still talking by by dawn. Um, Well, Michael loved that. And he had these kids over for these very exciting sleepovers but you have to understand something about Michael's bedroom. Michael's bedroom was not a private place. It was not like your bedroom and mine. Michael's bedroom was a public place. For example, when Lionel Richie and Michael agreed to write We Are the World Together, Lionel, who was a client of mine, went over to Michael's house, and they lay on the floor, on the rug, and they wrote the lyrics together. Now, where did they lay on the rug? Michael's bedroom, because it was a public place, for God's sakes. And all of a sudden, Lionel, whose head is this far off the floor, um, feels something locking its gaze on his from this far off the floor. So he turns around very, very slowly to see what this could possibly be. And it turns out it's uh, Michael's boa constrictor, muscles, um, figuring out whether Lionel would make a good dinner or not. Um, so that's the kind of thing that went on in Michael's bedroom for the, so these sleepovers were not private events where horrible sexual things could go on. They were public events, but the women who, who let their kids hang out with Michael Jackson tended to be single. They tended to be unstable. They tended to have a lot of personal problems. They tended to be greedy for money and they tended to not have enough money. So what's the best way to get money under those circumstances? Well, sue Michael Jackson. Sue Michael Jackson for pederasty. Sue him for childhood sex molestation. Because after all, who can prove that it is or isn't true? Nobody. Nobody can prove that it isn't true. And I believe the first woman to do it got a settlement of $23 million. That's a lot of money. Now, we humans are very strange. Once something has been done, it becomes thinkable to us. And once one person has done it, Other people do it. So other women started to do the same thing. Then there's another little story you have to understand. When we were out on the road with the Jackson's Victory Tour, um, first of all, we did press conferences in New York and LA, and at each press conference, there were 3,500 press people. I didn't even know there were 3,500 press people in the world, and I was the leading expert in the subject. Um, And traveling with us, there were 200 press people. And one day, one of those press people told me a story. He was with a paper called the Boston Herald American. Now, there were two newspapers in Boston at that point. One was the Boston Globe, and one was the Boston Herald American. The Boston Globe had all the prestige. And so the Boston Globe had 27 Pulitzers. Uh, The Herald American only had nine Pulitzers. So every day when the two newspapers hit the stands, the Boston Globe would outsell the Herald American by 20,000 copies. And on this one day, the publisher came down to the newsroom, um, where all of the journalists are sitting around desks in a great big open space and said, tomorrow, I want a Michael Jackson cover. And all the journalists in that room said, no, we're not going to have a Michael Jackson cover. We're not a celebrity tabloid. We're not the National Enquirer. Um, we're a legitimate newspaper. And the publisher said, I'm sorry, you're going to have Michael Jackson on the cover tomorrow and turned around to walk out. So they put Michael Jackson on the cover the next day. And guess what happened to the circulation of the herald American? Remember, the Herald American normally undersold the Boston Globe by 20,000 copies. On this day, the Boston Herald American outsold the Boston Globe by 30,000 copies. In other words, stories on Michael Jackson made money. So the next day, the publisher, the Herald American, walked back into the newsroom, looked at his rock journalist, and said, you, I'm putting you permanently on the assignment of Michael Jackson. I want a Michael Jackson story every day. I'm giving you your own office. I'm giving you your own secretary. And the publisher of the Boston Globe walked into the newsroom and looked at his rock journalist and said, you, um, I'm giving you your own office and your own secretary. I want a Michael Jackson story every day. Now, what do you imagine sells more copies? A positive Michael Jackson story or a negative Michael Jackson story? And which is harder to come by? How How many contacts do you have inside the Jackson camp? Well, if you had me, That was good. But generally, you have very few. But it's easy to find people who have complaints about the Jacksons, and those make for negative stories. And if it bleeds, it leads, right? Um, If the story is hideous and monstrous, and especially if it's about sexuality, it's going to way, way outsell a real story about Michael's positiveness. So Michael's destroying Michael was a good way to make money. And what does that mean? That means that the people who bought the papers, guess who the people who bought the papers were, who drove up the figures that way, who put that extra profit in the pockets of the publishers. That was you and me. So we all killed Michael Jackson out of our prurient interest. And because there was nobody to speak up for him, because the person who started this tsunami um, this tidal wave of negative publicity. Um, I realized that my job with the Jacksons was to save Michael's soul, for God's sakes. And that somebody was really, to use the, it's, well, it was fucking up this tour, was really screwing it up badly and deliberately. And at first, I thought it was Don King. Because after all, Don King was for the promoter of the tour when they did a press conference at the Tavern on the Green in Central Park. Don King treated it as if he were the one who had sung all Michael's songs, and he was the one who did all the moonwalking on stage. But Don King had killed a man. It was, I believe, Cleveland, Ohio, and somebody owed him roughly $160 in a gambling debt, and he he kicked the man to the ground and then kicked and stomped on the man until he was dead. Um, So we had a murderer speaking on behalf of the most basically. Minded people I had ever seen, the most committed people I'd ever seen to their fellow human beings, that was insane. Now it took me three months and I finally got a gag order on Don King. He was not allowed to speak on behalf of the tour anymore at all, period. Um, and then I had to find who the real villain was. Because the real villain was one of those villains who's clever enough to stay totally invisible. In Sherlock Holmes, there's a villain called Moriarty. And how can you tell that Moriarty is a criminal genius? because you never know he's there because when a crime happens, it never occurs to you that he could be behind it. He is so good at remaining invisible. So I was up against an invisible enemy. And the closer I got to that invisible enemy, um, the more that invisible energy worked to get me off the tour. Um, And finally he succeeded. He got me thrown off the tour and I never saw Michael again in my life. And George, it was one of those grieving experiences one of the greatest losses that I've ever experienced. I mean, losing Bob Marley was horrible and, and leaves me in tears whenever I try to talk about it. But losing Michael was just awful because I had not finished my job. I had not managed to save Michael's soul. Um, and, and I knew his potential. And in the last year or so, when I was writing, I signed Michael Jackson and me um, and talking to Michael Jackson fans. I said, look, this is going to sound terribly egocentric. It's going to sound totally narcissistic. But after all these years, I have the impression that I'm the only one who understood Michael. And that couldn't possibly be because Michael surrounded himself with brilliant people like Quincy Jones and David Geffen, who are smarter than I am. So uh, this has just got to be my vanity. And his fans have said, no, it is not your vanity. You, uh, in fact, if I can read you, if I can find it, Um, What one of the fans wrote to me, it's just beyond astonishing. And let's see if I've got it here where I can find it. I'm not sure I do. At any rate, basically what he said is, you were the only one who listened to him. You were the only one who understood him. You have a quality of prophecy within you. You have an ability with words. Michael trusted that when you said this, it was not a vaudeville act. It was not a parlor trick. That it was absolute truth that it was for real. You were the only one he would listen to because you were the only one who found the child inside of him, the child inside of him trying to lift, upgrade, and empower other children, the child inside of him trying to give all wonder and surprise, the child inside of him trying to heal those kids who were suffering. And you were the only one to see that. That's why he trusted you. And you, in fact were the first one to find Neverland. You were the first one to find the real Michael Jackson. Well, I never had the privilege of being able to get that across to the public way back then. And I've been so obsessed with Michael Jackson. I do, I do a show once a week called Coast to Coast. It's the highest rated overnight talk radio show in North America. It's on 545 radio stations. And I've now done it 342 times. I'm going to do it again tomorrow night. And um, in the early years, when they used to have me on for four, five, or five hours, my producer, after the first six or seven years, called and said, could you please stop talking about Michael Jackson all the time? That's how obsessed I've been with Michael and what I feel he can contribute to humanity, if only he were understood. And so I try my best to put you next to Michael Jackson with your knee against his knee, with your elbow against his elbow, with your shoulder <clears throat> against his shoulder. So you will feel who Michael Jackson really was and what he can contribute to your life and what he can contribute to humanity. And one of the most important sentences, sentences in the book is if you loved Michael Jackson, even if you thought it was a guilty pleasure, if you loved him, you understood him far better than anyone who has ever written about him. And it's true because at a gut level, it means you get it, even though your conscious, rational brain is going, well, but wasn't he a sexual child molester and wasn't he a drug addict? And no, I'm sorry, he wasn't any of these things. Why was he using drugs? Look what his life had become for the last 25 years. We were torturing him, all of us were torturing him, and we wonder why he was using drugs. Plus, rehearsing for a tour got him very roused, very excited, and it was hard for him to come down and sleep because performing performing is the ultimate offering of yourself to your audience. I, I used to tell people who wanted to be clients of mine, look, if you expect me to fashion an artificial mask, an image, and sit here like a guy in a plaid suit with a cigar in his right hand saying, kid, I'm going to make you a star with this image, then I'm going to send you to my best competitor. If you're going to work with me, you have to understand that music is about an exchange of human soul. It is not an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not an exchange of downloads. It is not an exchange of money. It is a raw exchange of human soul. When a performer goes on stage and feels the pupils of his audience dilating, and feels their eyes widening, and feels their faces melting until they become one big amoebic blob of energy, whether it's the energy of 700 people or 70,000 people, and <clears throat> feels that energy channeled through him, as it were her, as if she were a pipe, and sees that energy go to someplace around the head and be utterly transmogrified and shoot back down to the audience again in this continuous feedback loop, um, that artist has an out-of-body experience. That artist is danced by a force far bigger than he or she normally knows on a day-to-day basis. And so is the audience. And it is the exchange of that essential soul, what I call the gods inside, that takes that artist over in that moment of performance with the gods inside the audience that makes a performance. So the artist offers you everything he is. Everything he is in order to lift you out of who you are for a minute and make you a part of something bigger than yourself. This is, so when Michael goes on stage to rehearse for a world tour, all of that is implicit in his performance. And it is not only the most exciting thing in the world, it is the most difficult thing to come down from. When John Mellencamp, who was an incredible on stage performer, absolutely astonishing, used to come off stage, The experience of coming back to your normal self was so jolting that he would find a little room in the dressing area where he could lock himself up for an hour so he could wait for the emptiness to end and his normal self to come back. But once upon a time, George Harrison was trying to get Eric Clapton off of heroin. And Peter Townsend, and he wasn't wasn't succeeding, so Peter Townsend tried to help out. And Peter said to Eric Clapton, I know why you're doing drugs. You go on stage, and for 70 minutes, you are filled with the souls of 70,000 people and with the Godhead. That thing around here that transmogrifies everything, because Peter Peter Townsend was into Mayor Baba at the time, and his idea of the Godhead. So you are filled with the Godhead and 70,000 souls. Then the minute you walk off stage, you are an empty pipe. And that emptiness hurts. And you try to fill that emptiness and reduce that hurt using heroin. Well, that's a very good description of what a performer offers to you, an audience, and to me, when that performer is on stage. That performer offers you everything. So Michael was rehearsing and having to come down from rehearsal and being tortured with negative headlines. 25 years of torture. No wonder he took propofil to go to sleep.
0: You have so much info just listening to you, you know, about Michael Jackson. You could probably go on for hours upon hours, but there's, there's one story I want to talk to you about. Columbia records hired you to help Billy Joel become more media friendly.
1: Well, actually it was Billy who hired me. Okay. Yeah. Not CBS. And it wasn't media friendly. It's the very opposite. Billy Joel I knew before I ever got the call from Billy Joel that there were two guys whose lyrics were so good that they would make it into the poetry anthologies of the 21st century, and which seemed a long way away in the 21st century. And they were Paul Simon and Billy Joel. And yet the press hated Billy Joel. They thought his music was superficial and trivial. It was anything but superficial and trivial. In fact, I think it was Robert Hilburn in, in the LA Times in a giant story contrasted Billy Joel with Bob Seger and he said Bob Seger is the real deal and he quoted from Bob Seger's lyrics and there are some good lyrics in Bob Seger and Bob Seger is one of the best rock singers ever that's absolutely true but to compare him with Billy Joel who writes really startling gem-like lyrics and to say Billy Joel's lyrics are trash and Bob Seeger's are treasures that's insane that's absolutely insane so when I was called to work with Billy Joel, my job was to turn the press around. And I went out to Long Island, and I explained to Billy how it's done. Um, once upon a time, there was a social critic um, named uh, Thomas Carlyle. And Thomas Carlyle, in the 1830s, was trying to explain how the rock crit elite of his day, the rock critics, there was no rock and roll, but there were plays. And plays were the popular art form of the time. They were what rock and roll has been over the last 40 years. Um, And the critics, you know, could tear apart a performer. They could tear uh, an actress, an actor. They could tear apart the playwright. They could be really mean and nasty. But Carlisle was trying to explain their group psychology. And he explained that he had a friend who was a writer in Germany. And one day, the writer in Germany was standing in the middle of a farm field. And a bunch of sheep were coming in his, his general direction. Now, sheep. When they are herded by shepherds alongside farms, they are not allowed to travel across the farm, the part of the farm that's been used to raise crops. They have to travel on these little narrow lanes next to the fields. Um, and the names are, lanes are so narrow that if you took a girlfriend on a date, you don't want to take her walking in the countryside of one of these lanes because the two of you can't walk abreast and hold hands. You have to try to put your hand behind you because she has to follow you in single file. So these 2,000 sheep were coming um, in the direction of this rider, single vial. And the rider decided to try an experiment. He put his cane out in front of the lead sheep, and the lead sheep jumped over the cane. Then the rider withdrew the cane. What do you think the other 1,999 sheep did? They jumped at precisely that point, even though there was no longer anything to jump over. And that, Carlisle said, is how the press operates. They have a lead sheep, and everybody imitates what the lead sheep has to say. So I explained to Billy my job, I had developed relationships with the lead sheep. And my job was to find what was genuine or authentic in him and to tell his story in a compelling way because it was a compelling story. It was a for real story. And to turn the lead sheep around so the other 1,990 press people turned around. To give you an idea of how the lead sheet principle works, I told you, I didn't like to do easy things. I like to do crusades. And ZZ Top was a band, Bob Crisco, who had named himself the Pope of the rock crit elite, and he's the guy who had named the rock crit elite, had said in the pages of the Village Voice, which was a highly influential paper at that time, a lead sheet paper, that ZZ Top had a sound like hammered shit. So one day I was out at a rock concert, a ZZ Top concert in Minneapolis. And I also had a band um, called Dr. Bazard's Original Savannah Band. And Bob Palmer, who was another one of the lead sheep over at the New York Times, loved Dr. Bazard's original Savannah Band. So I was seated between the two rock critics, one from each newspaper. And we had a short conversation, and then they each opened his newspaper. One was reading The Village Voice that said ZZ Top had a sound like hammered shit. The other one was reading the New York Times that said Dr. Bizarre's original Savannah band was the next savior of the universe. And they they witnessed a concert in which 12,000 kids went crazy for 90 minutes, went absolutely berserk for 90 minutes. And then they went home to their typewriter and guess what they wrote? The one who had, been, uh, uh, who had been reading the ZZ Top article in the Village Voice basically wrote the ZZ Top had a sound like hammered shit and totally ignored the audience reaction that had been going on around him. And the one who had been reading the New York Times went home and wrote a story about how Dr. Bazard's original Savannah Band, another client of mine, were the saviors of the universe. That's how sheep life the rock critics are around the country. So I explained this to Billy and explained the idea of taking the lead sheet and showing them the genuineness, which with Billy is so easy, it's ridiculous. It is a miracle that they fail to recognize that genuineness in the first place. And turning, thus turning, by turning around the first one in line, turning around the other 1,999. And he called it guerrilla publicity. So that was, I mean, I explained it to Billy. It made sense to him. He was delighted by the whole concept. And uh, then I had a problem because because Billy Joel was so hated by the press, I had a press. The only account executive I had free was an account executive that was rare for me, an account executive I had not trained, who had been trained elsewhere in publicity. And her gift was being friends with Robert Hilburn from The L.A. Times and Bob Criscow from The Village Voice and all of these rock crit elite people. But when you are a publicist and you become best buddies with the rock crit elite, you're, you become another, uh, another follower sheep. Um, you assume all of the likes and dislikes of the rock crit elite and you become incapable of turning those opinions around because you don't dare have an opinion that disagrees with everybody else's opinion or you're afraid of being thrown out of the group. Um, So she, but she was very bright and very pretty. And I wanted to put her on the case. She was a high quality person and this is a high quality talent, Billy Joel. And she absolutely refused. And I finally managed to get her into a rental car to drive out to Long Island. And for the hour and a half to two hours on the way to Long Island, I propagandized her about Billy Joel. But when I say propagandized, I mean, I told her the truth about Billy Joel Um, And by the time we got to Billy's place, she was willing to work with Billy. Well, guess what happened to her in the end? She ended up marrying one of Billy's managers, and she was with Billy Joel for the next 30 years as if she had loved Billy Joel all along. Well, she hadn't, but that was the job, turning people's perceptions around when there was something really important and valid and true to say. So I I will accept Billy's moniker, uh, guerrilla publicity.
0: You've worked with uh, many great, um, artists over your lifetime. Uh, Like you look at writing your autobiography, right? Writing, writing your autobiography.
1: Well, this this is this book Einstein, Michael Jackson and me, a search for soul and power fits of rock and roll is my rock and roll autobiography. And people have been asking me to write it, um, for 20 years. Um, but when I left, Rock and roll. Remember, my field is science. And this for me was a scientific expedition into the land where the gods are, into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. Um, and I was not going to get that by going to grad school in neuroscience, not at all. I'd get nowhere near it. But I, this, these were my Galapagos Islands. This was my voyage of the beagle. Um, this was my equivalent of Darwin's five year adventure, um, touring the coast on a sailing ship of South America. Um, and so when I got out of it in 1988, then I had a problem. I was literally a legend in, in the rock and roll business. Uh, the billboard guide to music publicity had 20 uninterrupted pages about me and what I call perceptual engineering, what Billy called guerrilla publicity. So how in the world are you going to get out of that and back to your science? Nobody's going to take you seriously in science. If you've been working with Michael Jackson and Prince, nobody at all. So it took me twenty years, um, thirty years actually, to re-establish my credibility. So now I've been published or have given lectures at scholarly conferences in thirteen different scientific fields, and you know I mentioned uh, quantum physics and, and cosmology and evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology and neuroscience and information science, all of these strange fields, bi- biopolitics. So now that I have my scientific credibility, I was out on the west coast two years ago. And I stay at a, a motel near Sunset Boulevard, where all of my actors' managers used to be. And um, I, I have my friend Eric Gardner, who used to, who got his start as a road manager for the Jefferson Airplane and then became a, man, a rock manager and worked with Todd Barngren when I knew him and Donnie Osmond of all crazy, crazy people and all kinds of things. Well, he came over to have lunch with me. I really was eager to see him after 30 years and not seeing him. And I started to tell him some of these rock and roll stories and his jaw dropped. And after half an hour of it, he said, Howard, you've got to write this as a book. And then I realized I'd sufficiently reestablished my scientific credentials that I could finally get away with writing a rock and roll memoir. And under this memoir, there are a lot of crusades. You know, I, I did something I called secular shamanism. And my job, if you were my client, was to find the gods inside of you who danced you on stage was to find the gods inside of you who wrote your lyrics when you were absolutely sure you could never write another lyric again in your life. So this is soul diving into the very souls, the most powerful, passionate parts of 27 of the most important rock people of our generation. And since no one else did that, George, I mean, to me, it should have been obvious. I should have had lots of competitors doing it. But no, nobody else saw it that way. So it's an opportunity to see the real passions at the heart of these 27 superstars.
0: Where can people pick up the book?
1: Um, amazon.com bookstores have been closed because of the coronavirus crisis. And uh, the book is available online at amazon.com at Burnsandnoble.com, and at, I think it's called bookshop.org. Um, but Amazon's the easiest place to get it.
0: Howard, it was- I asked this question to everyone. How do yeah. they contact you if they want to ask you a question?
1: Uh, they go to howardbloom.net. Um, that's my website. And, um, they, and they, they try to friend me, friend me on Facebook. Um, and now, look, I've got 5,000 friends, and that's as many as they allow you. But every once in a while, somebody drops out, and I add some new people. There are something like 160 or 200 people waiting to try to be friends of mine, and I can only pick a tiny number. And this is not me. This is... This is what, uh, Facebook does to us. And buddy, you friend me on Facebook, you send me a message. Um, and, and I reply to all of the messages I get on Facebook messenger.
0: That's awesome. Finally, it's called meet me for coffee. The show, do you drink coffee, Howard?
1: Um, not anymore. I discovered that I was uh, allergic to it. So I stopped drinking
0: coffee about 30 years ago. I'm on a, I'm on a bit of a cold streak right now. Today I actually, ah. went, I went on the whole day without a coffee, and uh, You're I must be having the DTS by now. I'm I'm pretty. I'm actually having one right now. I went the yeah. whole day. I'm pretty shaky. I felt like I was like God. underwater the whole day. You it's poor, crazy. Baby. It poor is, baby. Oh, it's so it's the, one of the hottest days of the of the year too. So,
1: well, I use I use the stuff called guarana, and guarana is an organic caffeine. Um, so instead of drinking coffee, I just take my free Guarana and I'm good to go.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much, Howard. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you,
1: George. It's been an absolute pleasure.